Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. For a middle-aged male, uh, total testosterone, you would expect optimal to be between about 500 and 1100. Free testosterone, uh, between about 12 and 29 nanograms per deciliter. Picograms per mil is sometimes also used, which is a factor of 10 different. And then for estradiol, as high as possible without symptoms, but in general, a ratio of about uh, three to one estradiol to free T. For example, if your free T is 20, your estradiol could be 40 to 60, which is about two to three times higher. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interview Dr. Kyle Gillette, a dual-board certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine and an expert in optimizing hormone levels to improve overall health. We discuss Dr. Kyle's six pillars of health, along with are calories important to track, will zone two cardio improve mitochondrial health, important blood panels to test, Dr. Kyle's favorite supplements, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Kyle. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Kyle Gillette. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brian. A pleasure. Thanks for coming on uh, all the way from Kansas. And uh, you have a um, a practice there as well, correct? Yeah. Um, I have what I call a health optimization clinic. It offers direct primary care for locals, individualized medicine, which is basically just um, the whole conglomeration of evidence-based medicine, whether your needs are functional or hormonal or fertility or aesthetics or whatnot, and then a concierge practice as well. And we also do telemedicine. Wow. That is great. Do you see this as like a growing trend in the medical community, um, what you're doing out there? I don't think individualized medicine is necessarily a growing trend. There's a few um, healthcare clinics and a few physicians that do individualized regimens, but often that requires attention to mechanism of action. So um, not just knowing what to do according to the algorithm, uh, but also knowing what to do given different situations and understand each person's physiology, get good objective data like labs and diagnostics, and then explain the benefits and detriments in layman's terms to each patient, depending on their genetics and their situation. Um, however, there is a huge trend of like med spas that dabble in hormones or hormone clinics that dabble in functional medicine or um, functional medicine clinics that dabble in hormones. Um, but I consider those kind of different entities. Yeah. I recently had on um, this gentleman, Dr. Michael DeYoung, he was urologist for 30 years and a surgeon and he, a lot of his talk was how, you know, the medical community, there's not a lot of training, um, as far as nutrition and like, uh, preventative medicine is concerned. Um, what type of, I know you're board certified physician, but what type of other education did you sort of go down routes that you go down in order to, you know, provide such a service? Yeah, I'm board certified in obesity medicine, which does have a lot of training in nutrition, especially if you go to a reputable place like um, NIH in Columbia has a combined 
um, Institute of Nutrition, I believe. Okay. And they have some great CME programs. Um, in addition, I'm also board certified in family medicine, and I chose a residency that really emphasizes food as medicine and exercise as medicine, um, which is inheritantly two of the fastest growing student interest groups in medical schools across the country. Mm. In general, I think the Midwest does a great job of emphasizing primary care um, in, med in like medical school. However, during residency education, and there's many reasons for this. I'm just kind of stating um, mm -hmm. the problem, if you will. We have the least qualified and the lowest scoring medical students going into the most complicated broad spectrum specialties like family medicine and internal medicine. So um, that's, you know, that's the problem. Laid it out there. There's many things that can be done to help, but I am glad that many residencies are emphasizing food as medicine and exercise as medicine, for example. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely a growing need. And what would you say? Um, I noticed, uh, you talk about like six pillars of health. You know, I, I, I excuse me, interesting that you have that. Cause I do, I work with individuals and I have sort of like my six pillars. I'm curious what yours are as far as when you start working with an individual. Diet and exercise are the first two. Um, and I just added a seventh one too. Oh, okay. convinced me too. <laughs> social health is the seventh one, oh. but the last five are all S's due to alliteration and they're easy to remember sleep, stress, uh, social spirit. And I believe there's one other one that I haven't said yet. <laughs> sunlight. So sunlight's like sunlight, hot, exposure, yes. hot exposure, being outdoors. Humans are not meant to be indoors. So um, we have not been primarily indoors for quite some time and we have not had the, like the same temperature control and electricity, um, mm -hmm. for a long time. So, but anyway, I, I like to say that these interventions are more powerful than any medication or supplement. And they're like the first thing to look for when uh, either treating a, a pathology or optimizing a specific, um, marker of health, like athletic performance or cognitive performance. Yeah. No, so we're right on the same wavelength here, and you added in social. Yeah, I, I like that, especially because, just like with the whole pandemic, uh, like people, everyone's just not used to being around other people and having like that social interaction. Is that is that the reason you sort of added that in? That's one of the reasons. Another reason is as I walked into Rich Roll's podcast, I was traveling with my kids, and um, they are both toddlers. And both of my boys were just screaming and having fits. Mm. So um, a lot of times the health of the family unit can have profound implication on each individual's health. For example, it's well known in nicotine cessation that um, like in general, all nicotine out of the house that helps, but everybody in the family attempting to quit at the same time is far more successful. And it's the same thing for any other um Thing that you're trying to achieve yeah if it's done in a group atmosphere it, there's a lot more um you're not a lot more apt to change yes um well, what are your six by the way yeah now you put me on the spot <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh, i put you on the spot no no um yeah no uh food meals obviously what you eat when you eat so i do i've that's all one and then sleep stress uh creating clarity uh, and, uh, what else am I missing? See, I'm like, you, I, you, you, you like have it in your head, sleep, stress, uh, mindful. Oh, like meditation as well. Mm -hmm. So 
Yep. Do you, do, is that something you talk about as well with individuals is some type of mindfulness practice? Yeah. Um, I would consider that to mostly be under the spirit pillar yeah. of health. Okay. So the stress pillar of health kind of go hand in hand. Um, but, um, whether it's mindfulness or whether it is meditation or prayer or different types of like subsets of yoga, um, I think all can be helpful tools and it kind of gets at that interplay or the interconnectedness between your, cause it's body, mind, and soul between your mind and your soul. And your soul is kind of meta. It is metaphysical. Um, mm-hmm. it's where you are on Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, what you're looking at in that very top of the pyramid, which is self-actualization. And then that has very close interplay with how your fight or flight or rest and digest are balanced or just your mental health well-being in general. And do you believe that there are actually positive stressors that individuals can incorporate into their lives? I know you talk about like sunlight and cold exposure and you know warm therapy and things like that. Absolutely. Um, stress is kind of like effort. If you learn how to enjoy the effort or enjoy the stress, then that is going to cause a positive feedback mechanism where it helps not only your, um, like resilience, science and mindset, like Dr. Crum often talks about, but also your hormonal health. So we know that there's definitely a bit of a positive feedback loop when it comes to, for example, testosterone production, where you achieve something that is very difficult. And then you have that, um, not just dopamine, but also testosterone, um, improvement soon after now, one instance is probably not going to make a huge difference, but cumulatively and consistently over time, it can. Do you think that, I mean, I always talk about these stressors, right? Like fasting, calorie restriction, even, uh, carb restriction, these stressors I've had, like some individuals on my podcast recently, Jay Feldman, um, talking about more like this bioenergetic viewpoint. I don't know if you've heard of any of that with Dr. Ray Pete, who actually recently just passed away, but, um, and they talk about that, you know, for example, like carb restriction, these are stressors. They cause these counter-regulatory hormones to increase and could cause issues with thyroid and things like that. What, what are your thoughts around that as far as hormonal health with all these stressors? So I suppose the dose makes the poison with a lot of stressors, especially when it comes to diet. Some things like trans fat and margarine potentially can be a lower dose. Some things require a much higher dose. For example, for um, one of the 10% or so of metabolically healthy individuals in the United States, um, even something like uh, a drink with a whole bunch of sugar in it, like refined sugar is not necessarily a stressor. So, um, and I think your approach is very similar to that as well. It's unique. Some people just literally have a genetic polymorphism to where they tolerate carbohydrates better without developing insulin resistance. So, um, that, yeah. so I don't want to just answer that. It depends because everything right. depends. Um, but yes, stressors definitely make a big difference in hormone health. One of the most well-known, I guess, widely applicable strategies is, um, when you look at individuals in a significant caloric deficit. So, you know, not just 50 calories a day. Um, the group that goes on a very low fat diet does have significant decreases in sex hormones, for example, testosterone. So finding healthy fats, especially when you are in a, like a significant diet 
is of importance for maintaining good hormone health and good lean body mass and then good metabolism and less chance of rebound. Got it. And uh, regarding calories, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a, always a hot topic talked about. And what what is your what are your thoughts around calories in calories out as far as that that as far as that's role with you know diet and and um you know maintaining weight and and also well I got something to piggyback off that but go ahead and you can answer that yeah yeah, yeah for sure I love talking about calories in calories out obviously you're not going to break the laws of thermodynamics um, calories and calorie tracking is one of my favorite tools one of them but it is not the only tool. So the problem with that is um, when you respond to any actionable item or any tool to help with body composition, maintenance, or changes with um, no calories in, calories out matters more, then it downplays the importance of other factors. For example, on my nutrition prescriptions, there's like six or seven different things that I like to circle and then ones I add in sometimes. For example, number of meals per day or eating speed or number of plates per each meal. For example, take what you normally would put on one plate, put it on three different plates, eat one plate, wait five minutes, eat a second plate, wait 10 minutes, and then eat the third plate if you're still not satiated. Um, macronutrients is another one that can be added in from time to time. Um, slow bites can be added in from time to time using different um, tools to eat like chopsticks, to eat a lot of different things. Oh, that would take so... me a long time to eat. Yeah. And sometimes that can be, uh, therapeutic as well. But anyway, um, there's a different tool for each situation. Um, for people that are stuck in quicksand, there are different types of quicksand. They need different tools. And, um, we also need different unique tools depending on our situation. That's interesting. The different techniques you talked about with putting it on different plates, using chopsticks. I'm a big golfer. I'm, I'm, it just made me think about how there's many ways to learn one thing, right? Um, and that's 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 interesting. You could tell somebody to eat slow, but they what does that mean? Like what they might not do. You know, they're they're looking. They're they need something or almost in their way <laughs> to make them eat. So same thing with golf, but we won't get into that um, right now. <laughs> uh, Interesting. So how do you get a good measure? Cause my only, you know, I'm obviously calories do matter. I, I'm not like totally against that. I, I don't, a lot of times like with calorie counting, how do you constitute, um, that as far as the accuracy of it? And then even if they're absorbing everything that they're taking in as well as like calories out, like it just seems like it's a bit amb ambiguous there's a lot of ambiguity around that. And so how do you go about um, creating accuracy for that? You could be as scientific or uh, you, or I guess you can be as quantitative or qualitative as you like. Most people who track calories, it is a very qualitative thing. They are not in as much of a deficit. For example, physicians and dietitians. um, when they're asked to track calories burned and consumed, they overestimate the amount of calories burned by at least 10% and underestimate the amount of calories consumed by at least 10%. And then um, for your layman, um, it is going to be significantly higher numbers than that. So that being said, you can qualitatively still use that tool. Right. Um, I or you can quantitatively use that tool. You can track 
your RMR and you can measure it usually at places where you get DEXA scans. And then uh, you can uh, like buy food services. There's a whole bunch of ways. Um, most of the time, patients have already tried uh, calorie counting. And one of the biggest pearls that uh, I have found is that if that's the first thing you go to, and there is someone who usually by the time they found a board certified obesity medicine physician, they've seen a few other professionals and tried it on their own. And if their um, like heart is set that calorie counting does not work for me, then you don't destroy your rapport and then lecture them about how calories in equals calories right. out. You might find a tool like tracking macronutrients, which you can estimate their calories from the macronutrients. So maybe they would have better success utilizing that and other tools. Yeah. I mean, I've tracked my, my own calories here and there. And I find that like, at least for myself, I don't know about you, Kyle, it's like you eat the same stuff week and week <laughs> for the most part. So once you do it for a week or two, you have an idea of, of, you know, how much you're consuming on average per, per day. Um, what are your thoughts around like macronutrients are, are do you, you know, you, you, someone comes to you and, you know, they obviously want to lose weight and most people want to lose it really fast, even though it's taken them decades to maybe put on this weight. Do you, do you take a certain approach as far as macronutrients is concerned? Usually my approach of macros is ensuring that they have enough high quality protein sources, just like carbs, fats, and proteins are not created equal. Um, I have done deep dives in the Gillette health clinic podcast into like each of these, because there's a lot of medications, for example, um, omega-3 ethyl esters, it's a type of fat. Um, but regarding protein, you want to make sure that you have in general about 0.8 and depending on the individual, it can be, of course, be slightly higher and lower 0.8, um, grams of protein per pound of body weight per day. Do, so, which is, you, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do you say per pound of body weight or desired body weight? I, I usually say per pound of body weight okay. for desired body weight. It could probably be less than that in general. Um, usually I just put the caveat in there that depending on the person, it can be slightly more or slightly less. So for someone that is, that weighs 400 pounds, that is over 50% body fat. then that can obviously be does not have to be over 300 grams of protein per day. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. So, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to get that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good clarification. That's actually a pretty good idea as well. And then, so you got protein, obviously I always talk, you know, we talk about prioritizing protein and then from there, um, as far as obviously fats, where do you go? Is that a lot of times just maybe cooking in the right type of fats, things like that? Yeah. Using the right types of fats to cook, um, perhaps chatting with the dietitian about smoke points, especially if um, like knowledge regarding fats and how they can change is not great. And then also thinking about um, fats that you may not be aware that you're adding. And in addition, I love to talk about alcohol, seven cows per gram. So um, pretty high caloric density macronutrient there and liquid calories in general. Um, whether it's fat or alcohol or carbs, I love to talk about liquid calories and then fiber, because a lot of fibers, um, actually have calories as well. For example, like allulose versus isos, um, some, uh, they don't have their, their carbs. So they don't like have 0.5 calories per gram, 
but you might absorb one eighth of them. So they're like, um, you know, per gram, how many calories are, are you needing to burn is often lower. So um, thinking about a lot of those other additions is something that can be clinically significant. And just going back on your point regarding, because I do DEXA scans with my clients along with myself. Uh, we have a lot quite in the, in the area, but I just got one done recently. Did you mention that it gives you your BMR or your, um, a lot of places like DEXA fit, um, you'll be able to, they have like a couple different offerings okay. and usually they try to upsell you a package where you get, um, your BMR and, um, your VO2 max and et, okay. et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Got it. Yep. Uh, is that something you use with clients? Do you have them do DEXAs? Cause that's something that I've been trying to do for most of my clients. DEXA is my uh, favorite thing to test of the three. Um, VO2 max isn't terrible, but usually I do not have them do uh, metabolic rates based on metabolic rates. Um, DEXA is a couple other things, a couple other clinical pearls, if you will. Um, Yes, if you change the amount of carbs you're consuming, you'll have to think about glycogen depletion and repletion and how that shifts water and water weight, which is detected as lean body mass. Mm. Same thing for creatine. Um, but in general, if your uh, like diet hasn't drastically changed, DEXs are pretty good longitudinally over time. Okay, so there could be a, a few downfalls with DEXA, meaning it might detect... Um, might detect, what'd you say, lean mass when it's really just water? Is that, is that what you were saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause so, it's I, I, I just did one. I'm doing this little self-experimentation where I've added in an extra meal. Cause I used to just do a couple meals a day and do a little bit more fasting. And I was like, you know, thyroid was maybe a little bit lower than I, I thought. So I been implementing carbs more into my diet and, um, and yeah, I'm going to be doing a podcast on it soon, but Definitely went up in body fat percentage, but I mainly whole food carbs like fruit and things like that. Do you have um, ways to target and use fruit as as something? Because this is you see this coming with some of the the carnivore craze, some of the, with everyone that's been so low carb for so long, and perhaps maybe it's taken a hit on their hormonal health. Do you see adding back things like fruit as as beneficial? Eating healthy carbs can certainly help increase free testosterone and decrease SHBG, which is the protein that binds up androgens and estrogens. So it can be helpful. Um, as most people are aware, not all fruits are created equal and um, chopped up fruit is not equal to whole fruit. But don't chop it up. Yep. <laughs> what about food combining? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not... I don't think I'm familiar with what food combining is. What What's that? Concept? You know, sometimes people will say, oh, you should eat a certain food by itself. You know, sometimes mixing like fruit with other things or it. Um, yes. So. Yep. No, definitely significant, especially when it comes to artificially or low or no calorie sweeteners. Okay. So um, there's been decent studies done um, and there will be a lot more because that's another super hot topic. Um, the sweeteners, yeah, consuming, uh, like liquid or just artificial sweeteners in general or natural sweeteners can like potentiate the glycemic response of a meal and not all high glycosylated end product foods, which is basically foods that are known to increase things like glycosylated albumin, A1C, um, markers of diabetes, essentially not all of those 
are elevated just due to carbs. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I do think that that's a fairly important concept, but not as much, um, I'm not sure what the premise of it is. If, if it's like eating fruit and meat separate, um, I wouldn't think so. And then as far as sweeteners, you know, obviously you see like stevia is in like everything, (laughs) which I guess has been, I don't know, you know, what are the studies around that and which sweeteners are maybe people should avoid? Yeah. Um, a good concept to think about when it comes to artificial sweeteners is there is an opportunity cost for not utilizing an artificial sweetener. And that's, you are much more likely to seek out, especially if you intuitively um, don't track your calories, you're much more likely to seek out other sources of sugar, which have many more calories. So the there, there's actually a lot of, uh, a ton of things are potential carcinogens, but are not clinically significant carcinogens. And the artificial sweeteners that are allowed for use, for example, sugar alcohol, um, erythritol, aspartame, stevia, xylitol, um, in reasonable quantities, in my opinion, none of them are concerning, uh, concerning carcinogens, especially when compared to, you know, like an equitable dose of I was just consuming glucose, um, developing that insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome is definitely a higher cancer or neoplasm risk. Um, yeah, sorry if that question rabbit trailed a bit. Um, but in general, I am not anti-artificial sweetener. I consume some artificial sweeteners myself. Um, it is interesting that stevia has become so prevalent. Um, I, try to consume everything in moderation and try to consume as few as possible. Um, for people that have a lot of a sweet tooth or they're driven to seek out sweets, they might need to watch it more closely just to keep in moderation. And, and on that note, what is like your typical routine? I'm, I'm a big routine guy, morning, night, <laughs> sleep routine. What type of routines do you implement into your day? Yeah, I like to eat in the morning. Um, and a lot of times I eat eggs. Um, uh, we have, uh, chick like pasture raised chickens out back. They lay a lot of eggs and I like that. Um, in general, I like to have a protein shake combination of like whey, albumin and casein in the morning. And after that I exercise, not because it's best to exercise first thing in the day, just because that's when I can do it. Um, and then is there a reason uh, I, you, is it, I'm sorry, you have, so you have eggs and you bake a shake. Is there a reason you do a shake as opposed to eating foods? Convenience. Okay. Only convenience. Got it. Um, of note, I suppose, um, eating whole foods is nearly always better. I try not to consume any liquid calories at all. Um, at one point after I had my first son, I lost probably 40 ish pounds. Mm. Um, mostly, mostly body fat, but not all. Um, But at that time, I did very few interventions. I cut out all my liquid calories with the exception of two adult beverages every two weeks. (laughs) And then um, I had a a casein protein shake, which can increase prolactin a bit, but it's good for satiety along with a bit of oats. Um, This was when I was in residency. So um, although I don't think time was any more short in residency compared to now, but anyway, that's basically what worked for me. And I also consumed foods that I really loved a ton that are of high nutrient density, but low caloric density. So for me, that was spinach, 
Greek yogurt and egg whites. That's what you consuming now or what you used to consume? I used to consume a lot of those from time to time. I still do now, but when I was um, attempting to be in a caloric deficit and have weight loss, um, I enjoyed consuming those and um, they made me feel like I was not hungry, which I liked. Got it. Uh, so high nutrient dense foods. So what also you'll work out after mid morning, let's just say, then you'd probably go to your practice. Yep. And then what about evening routine? Anything around there? I know you have two, how old are your kids? Um, one just turned three and one is 17 months. Oh, and uh, we try to eat dinner at the dinner as a family. Um, we use the, we decide what you're eating and when you're eating and they decide how much and when they're done. And that seems to work pretty well. Um, then after that, we usually just play around, play a little Tykes basketball, maybe wrestle. And, um, then it's bedtime. And then, um, so yeah, absolute, absolute pandemonium during bedtime. After that, I can relax a little bit, catch up on work that I haven't done from earlier that day, perhaps, uh, talk to the wife and I tried not to eat after bedtime, but sometimes it can be hard. And, uh, outstanding. Okay. I like to know people's routines. It's fun. Yeah, it's, it's not a perfect routine, but it's what I have gotten used to and it, it works well enough, um, when I'm in a maintenance phase like this. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, and let's, t you know, I, going back to your pillars of health, obviously sleep and stress, and then you got social, we talked about, you know, sunlight. Uh, I'm a big fan of walking. I, well, I have two dogs, so we walk probably, we average like three walks a day, no matter the weather. <laughs> um, what do you, uh, what do you emphasize for clients around sunlight? And you even mentioned some cold. I actually have a cold plunge. <laughs> I put one in, uh, I've had it for like a year. It's like unbelievable. It's great. Um, but anyways, thoughts around sunlight walking, you know, some stressors that you, you, you like to recommend. Extremely helpful. I, I do try to get my morning sunlight a la Andrew Huberman. Mm -hmm. And I just really get my evening sunlight as well. Uh, we have two wolfhounds, so we're taking them on walks very often, usually after dinner. And then on the weekends after breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then uh, noon hour at the office, uh, myself and as many staff as possible do like to go out when the sun is very strong and take like a 15 to 20 minute walk. So I think that helps us power through the afternoon well. Yeah, I always say walking is one of those just like biohacks that is simple, should be fairly easy for most people. Is this something that you try to get your clients to do maybe right off the bat? Yep, uh, absolutely. When I was in residency, we had something called walk with a doc where patients could just literally show up at this nice central park location oh. and we'd all just walk because it's one of the best things that you can get in a good habit of doing. Um but yeah, walking is not the only exercise people should do. There should be a combination of resistance training and uh, basically cardio. And you do have to walk pretty fast, really fast in order to get into zone two. Not everybody's able to do it. And I was actually just going to touch on that zone two. You, you know, this is coming up. Obviously, Peter, Dr. Peter Thiel has talked a lot about it. Uh, maybe explain to people a little bit about that if that's something that they want to implement. Yeah. Zone two is relatively easy cardio. You're not killing yourself. You're usually able to do it for a very long period of time. 
you can look at your heart rate and calculate based on like your maximum heart rate and where you are for the other zones, what your zone two would be. For most people, it's, you know, around 110 to 135, 40, but it depends on the person, a good rule of thumb. And you don't necessarily have to track your heart rate the entire time you do zone two, looking at your fitness tracker to see if you're still in, you can, but a, a brisk, somewhat difficult pace, but you can still talk through it is a good rule of thumb. And what is all, I guess, maybe a couple reasons why zone two is, is beneficial. It's particularly good for mitochondrial health zone two, and then also REM sleep. That's going to prevent that's like the number one and number two things to prevent mitochondrial damage. You can take a full stack of mitochondrial health supplements and um, they're still not going to benefit as much as just the zone two and the REM sleep. And regarding REM sleep, because obviously sleep is a big one. What do, do you use any supplementation for individuals that maybe need help with sleep or do you more or less so look at maybe like their sleep routine and ways to, you know, maximize their, their sleep quality with that? Yeah. Just like any other health optimization parameter, often both the medications and supplements are just tools whereas the lifestyle interventions are the actual work or digging or, um, or whatnot. I do like the 10, three, two, one, zero rule within 10 hours or so, no caffeine, or if you know your genetic polymorphism of how fast you metabolize it, you can go sooner or later than that. Mm -hmm. But in general, nobody should be consuming caffeine within 10 hours, just because of adenosine signaling. And then, um, three hours, um, would be, no, I believe it's no, no exercise, no vigorous exercise within three hours or no food within three hours, two hours, um, ideally no food at all. And then one hour, no bright white or blue lights and ideally no screens and then zero snooze in the morning. Oh, wow. No, no, no snoozing. You should just get right up. Right. Yep. It, it's kind of like, uh, uh, I forget if it's called Pavlov's dog, but it gets you in the habit of um, alarm goes off. If you need to wake up to an alarm, um, you are up. Also, your circadian clock will, uh, a lot of people do this. And when I get up at the same time, I do this as well. You wake up like five minutes before your alarm, 10 minutes before your alarm. Yeah. That's not a coincidence. That's usually because um, you don't snooze as much. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I usually tell myself, I, I, sometimes I set an alarm, but usually I'd be like, you know what? I want to get up at this time. <laughs> and I get up. Is that like, a, is that, is that a good sign? I don't know. I, I tell myself when I want to get up and I get up usually at that time. Definitely a good sign. Okay, good. <laughs> Unless like now uh, you're in Kansas, I'm in Chicago. It is dark. I mean, we haven't had sun in like, I think this is the ninth straight day without sun. Um, so yeah. it's been pretty dark here. Okay. Uh, anyways, so zone two cardio. Okay. And then what thoughts around, like, i just did a big blood panel. Actually, I just got blood work done. I'm waiting back on the results, but I usually do that every, I do that in, in combination with the DEXA, um, certain blood work parameters that people should look at. I know that obviously you talk a lot about hormonal health. Uh, what, what things should people maybe be at the forefront of their mind for, for blood work? Fasting insulin. A1C, there's no reason why everybody shouldn't be getting A1C. Um, and then SHBG, which is that protein sex hormone binding globulin that binds up all your other hormones. 
Definitely a CBC, CMP, lipids, which are pretty routine. If your lipids are high, especially an LDL over about 130, then get an ApoB, which is apolipoprotein B. It's um, a better marker to track for risk of heart attack and stroke, what we call ASCBD. In addition, as far as hormones, you definitely want to get a TSH. And if you were at risk or have hypothyroidism, you want to get free thyroid hormones and possibly even more. And you also want to get a CRP, which is a marker of inflammation, also conveys cardiovascular risk. A lot of people should also get a homocysteine, which is another inflammatory marker, but it also has to do with um, like how well you are utilizing your B12 and folate, how well your methyl donation is, and how much uh, inflammation you have in your body. I think of it as oxidative stress. Um, and then testosterone, estradiol, which is your main estrogen, and progesterone for most people, um, and then IGF-1, which is a decent marker of growth hormone. Just those labs, that's basically what I call my uh, essential panel, but a lot of other people, a lot of other, uh, I guess, businesses that sell labs direct to consumer, they call it like um, a comprehensive panel. But for me, that's just the essential panel. Right. And gosh, I was going to ask you regarding um, hormonal health, you know, are there certain levels? I mean, you talk about testosterone and, you know, even DHEA um, and thyroid. Are there certain levels that you look for with, let's just say, middle-aged men? Yeah. Um, for a middle-aged male, uh, total testosterone, you would expect optimal to be between about 500 and 1100. Free testosterone, uh, between about 12 and 29 nanograms per deciliter. Picograms per mil is sometimes also used, which is a factor of 10 different. And then for estradiol, as high as possible without symptoms, but in general, a ratio of about uh, three to one estradiol to free T. For example, if your free T is 20, your estradiol could be 40 to 60, which is about two to three times higher. And explain estradiol just for the listeners. Estradiol is the strongest estrogen. You also have estriol and estrone, but estradiol is by far the strongest. It binds to many receptors but uh, estrogen has a whole bunch of receptors, seven or more. Um, but some of the most important ones are estradiol alpha and estradiol beta. Depending on the ratio of those two receptors that you were born with or inherited in your prostate, that has a huge implication for prostate cancer risk. Um, in fact, a lot of things that block specific estradiol receptors can be used for both breast cancer and theoretically prostate cancer as well. Then it also has to do with how fast your growth plates and your bones will close. So estradiol closes growth plates, but it also accelerates growth. It helps with something called type three collagen synthesis, which is the collagen that's in keloids that helps with like elasticity of the skin or very fast scar formation. So if your wounds are healing slow, then you might have too low of estradiol. And then last and most importantly, estradiol helps with normal lipid metabolism and platelet formation. So if you have deficient estradiol, we know that those individuals are certainly at risk of heart attacks and strokes because of it. And you said estradiol pretty much as high as you can get it without? Without symptoms okay. um, and probably not higher than about three to one um, estradiol to free T ratio. 
And that's for people with a normal SHPG. Got it, got it. And I know you talked a little bit before about gene, like, do you look at gene SNPs and certain ones for, you know, for example, like I've, I've done the 23andMe and, and taken a look and put it, I believe Dr. Rhonda Patrick has some, you know, just software you put. What's yeah. that? Yeah. It's called yeah. Prometheus. Okay. Yeah. Where it sort of takes your, um, uh, your gene SNPs and sort of parses them out. And, uh, one of them, and I forgot the name of it and maybe you could re- remember for me, but the one where you don't absorb, you don't, I guess, absorb or digest saturated fats as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is this something do you have most of your clients do some, well, some people might not be for it, so they might not want to do it, but like, do you do have them do some type of gene testing? Yeah. Occasionally I'll look at things like that. If you look at lipid metabolism, it can tell you um, some clinically significant things for pharmacotherapy. Like if you're a good candidate for azetamib, also known as Zetia or not, which affects lipid metabolism. There's also useful SNPs, for example, factor five laden, which conveys VTE or venous thromboembolism risk, blood clot. Um, however, um, a lot of those services, um, one, they might not be a hundred percent accurate. Usually they're like 99.9 or 99.8. So confirming with your doctor is always important. Also, whenever you order a genetic test, there's something called the sick roll, which is basically you get a test and you find out you have something that's not optimal and then you feel less healthy because of it. Right, right. So that's also a very important consideration. And then also, uh, most tests like 23andMe are 0.01 or 0.02% of the genome. So um, a SNP is like one letter of one word of one sentence of one paragraph of one chapter of one book of the Encyclopedia Britannica, except a much larger scale than that, where you can have different mutations, like a frame shift. So instead of just one word, they scramble the words, or you can have a deletion, you just delete a word, or you can have a repeat where you have CAG, 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 like in Huntington's disease, Fragile X, or the androgen receptor. So... All of these are very common and you would need full genome or at least full exome sequencing to evaluate those. Um, and occasionally we do test for those as they are clinically significant. Okay. Okay. So, so sometimes you'll bring it in, but not, not with everyone. Not necessarily with everyone. Yeah. Um, for concierge patients, if they just want to look at stuff, I think that is also reasonable after a shared decision-making process but I also think that the, for example, nutrigenomics, I think we are a long way from um, being able to use that in a clinically significant way, especially with every individual. Dr. Michael Snyder of Stanford, I think is a good source of evidence-based information regarding like nutrigenomics and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, yeah, I kind of see uh, precision genomics just like any other test. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Taylor Martin, who's a board-certified preventive medicine physician trained at Johns Hopkins, and uh, he would say uh, very similar. Got it. And uh, let's touch a little bit about some of your, I've, I've seen some of your posts regarding supplements. Have uh, you done some breakdowns? Maybe uh, what are some of your favorite supplements? I know there's going to be a decent amount of them um, that you, you currently recommend. Yeah. Um, I love talking about supplements. Um, my favorite <laughs> supplements personally might be slightly different, but relatively the same. Personally, my favorite supplements are creatine, hard to beat creatine, even if it's just for mitochondrial health in the brain, 
um, energy in general, decreasing homocysteine. Um, do, you, do you normally with you, with your creatine, you normally just put it in your shake? Yep. Okay. I don't mind the taste. Uh, my wife does not like the taste of creatine. I can't I even can, taste it. I can't even tell it's in there. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's something like stevia or licorice or TPS paper where it's just like a genetically predispositioned taste or no taste. If okay. people, if, if our uh, science majors remember licking that paper in college, so, um, yeah, maybe it's like that. I don't know. Um, well, yeah. Uh, anyway, I take seven grams a day. Um, seven. Okay. I just throw it in with a shake. Um, I guess we could mention protein powder. Um, personally, I like taking um, more animal-based proteins or high leucine content, high methionine content, protein powders in the morning. Um, that way I kind of have a slightly better balance toward catabolism. I'm not a fan of casein shakes in the evening. Um, they're going to activate mTOR a lot. I try to digest plant, or if I take a protein shake in the evening or afternoon, I do plant protein and I try not to have too much plant protein or sorry, not too much animal protein. Um, regarding, re um, yeah, sorry to interrupt you there, but regarding casein, cause you've seen that where they're like, oh, you should take it towards the evening because it's slower digesting, but you're not, you don't like that. Nope. Um, for, for like a, a growing child or a pediatric patient, if that's something that benefits them, that that's a consideration. Um, but for adults, I would think that is the opposite of what you want. So some people are familiar with rapamycin and like Dr. David Sinclair and Dr. Peter Atia used to talk about that. Um, think of casein protein as the opposite of that. So protein quality matters. You're usually looking at like methionine content, leucine content. Um, and those tend to be very high in most animal and dairy proteins like casein. So you're, are you against casein or you're just against it in the evening? Just against it in the evening. Okay. You can also like, this is for sure applicable to fasting windows as well. So if you want to get into the, um, like beneficial window faster, then you can skew your proteins to more plant-based as you're approaching the fasting window. Is that because it doesn't, um, What's the reason behind that? There's several mechanisms. One, it's going to boost up um, growth factors less, but a lot of it, and mTOR is not the only marker that matters. It has an mTOR, PI3, K, AKT pathway. And that is definitely one of the like beneficial cell checkpoints. For example, if you have a mutation in mTOR, it's an oncogene, which is related to cancer risk. Um, but uh, between that and other growth factor activation, um, then you are going to have a faster onset or slower onset, depending on what protein source you consume the meal right before your fast. Got it. So, so I guess if you're like OMAD or something, it doesn't really matter. Okay. So if you, you're saying if you lean towards plant-based proteins towards a fast, that's beneficial in the sense that it doesn't stimulate, um, some of the like uh, the mTOR and things like that, that, you know, so you'll, you'll help you get you into the fast quicker. That's what you're it saying. It would kind of mimic the effect of, for example, taking a rapamycin in the evening, every one to two weeks, or mimic the effect of taking a metformin two or three times a week in the evening. Okay. Yep. There's a lot of strategies. Another interesting one is taking quercetin. Um, 
So it has to do with both the rate of growth and the atypia of the cell growth and division. So you want both to be relatively low for 90, probably 98% of people, how you can help this the best is just the lifestyle pillars, diet, exercise, and not developing metabolic syndrome and not developing insulin resistance. That being said, I like to, especially for someone who's like, uh, has all those dialed in and is concurrently at very high risk of cancer. It is interesting to think about, um, ways that they can decrease their cancer risk, um, somewhat naturally. Okay. So, so far we got creatine, uh, yep. we got, we got protein and depending on the type when you're taking it, you typically like to use whey in the, in the morning, it sounds like, or you combined it maybe perhaps with casein, yep. um, and then quercetin, right? What else we got going? I also like vitamin D and omegas. So each person's going to benefit by an EPA to DHA ratio. That's different. I like doing omega checks and just objectively seeing um, like how much omega fatty acid is intracellular and kind of titrating according to that. Um, omegas are not without risk. For example, very high doses uh, even conveys an AFib risk. Um, and then vitamin D, most people, especially this time of year, are going to be suboptimal. I like that to be between about between about 40 and 100. Now, if someone is not, cause like, for example, I, you know, I'm not suboptimal as far as vitamin D is, but like I just said, we've just gone nine days without the sun. Um, do you think that it's worth even supplementing during the winter, especially if you're in the Midwest? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I supplement all through the winter. I also have a touch of, uh, what I'd call seasonal affective disorder, where I just literally feel slightly better when there's brighter sunlight and longer days. You and everyone and, else. <laughs> yeah. Um, my regimen for that is vitamin D and the full spectrum light that is on like our hydroponic system. So, um, Oh, like an infrared sauna, uh, where or go ahead. I'm not sure if it's infrared, but it's just considered like a full spectrum hydroponic light. I believe it's like the same full broad spectrum of wavelength that's on a, like a, I think they call it a daytime light. Okay. Yep. Um, I don't have an infrared sauna or a regular sauna yet. Um, but at some point you gotta, want... you gotta join me. I gotta, I'm lucky. I put a plunge in a sauna. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very yeah. jealous of that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I tell my wife, I'm like, she doesn't use them really. I'm like, do you know how many people would love to have uh, infrared and a plunger, a plunge in their house. But anyways, yep. lucky to have that. Um, okay. So creatine protein and protein powders, there are like a million on the market and we don't have to get all in the protein. I I'm, uh, but what's, what type of protein, like, I know not, not whey or casein, or is there like specific, maybe if, even if there's a brand that you like that people can look into, I've tried different types as well. Yeah. Um, I switch between brands really often. I used to get my protein because you could get an 11 pound bag. And I saw an analytical chemist post somewhere. They evaluate it and the, my protein, like protein quality was decent. You get 11 pounds for 50 bucks, but I don't think that's possible anymore. Um, the most recent one I tried is on the black Friday sale at gorilla mind. I bought one of their peanut butter proteins. I think it's good if you can consume peanut butter products. Um, Way back in the day, I thought the best protein ever was um, muscle farm combat protein. It tasted like cookies and cream. <laughs> and um, I, 
I, okay. I did not read ingredients back then, so I'm not sure if it's good right. or not, but I can confirm to me, it tasted great. <laughs> and it had albumin, micellar casein, and then um, isolate and hydrosylate whey. Okay. So kind of like your full spectrum of uh, digestion times for animal protein. Got it. Okay. Uh, anything else that comes to mind regarding supplementation? I love L-carnitine as well. Um, L-carnitine does many things. One, it can help with androgen receptor density, but it's basically like an extra fuel pump or shuttle for nutrients into your mitochondria. And um, if you take it orally, then you have to take a relatively high dose and potentially even watch TMAO, which it can convert to if you have a dysbiosis in your gut. Um, and then pro and prebiotics will round out my list. Mm. Um, I like to make the analogy of, you know, your gut is kind of like a fish tank or an aquarium and you have good fish, bad fish. You can feed the bad fish and good fish, fish food. Um, but if you just keep dumping in good fish and don't change the like fish food intake and then you have postbiotics kind of like tank cleaner, and then you drain your tank, hopefully once or twice a day, or maybe once every other day for some people is okay. Um, but yeah, those are my top. I like, I like that analogy. <laughs> I've never Thanks. heard. So wait, so pro and prebiotics now that's another market where there's a lot out there and it's like, okay, what, what's junk, what's not. You know, because you know it's not cheap, and supplementation is can be expensive on a month to month basis. Um, is there certain pro and prebiotics that you're looking for? Yeah, um, there's a lot of strains that I like. Good rule of thumb is Lactobacillus and Bifidobacterium are pretty good at acidification or crowding out other bacteria. Some people really like Lactobacillus ruteri; it can be helpful for that. Acromantia is also great at crowding out others. It's also associated with not having metabolic syndrome. Acromantia happens to like having psyllium fiber, um, but there's a lot of other strains. For example, Saccharomyces boulardii is a yeast that helps crowd out C. diff. Um, the, clinically like the clinical significance doesn't always match the studies. There's a lot that we don't know. There is pharmaceutical companies developing prescription-only probiotics, mostly for patients that have been hospitalized with C. diff before. What we do know is that um, strains that are high in lactobacillus and bifidobacterium genus strains are particularly good at um, preventing antibiotic-associated diarrhea, for example, from Augmentin. And you can even take those in between like antibiotic doses and then definitely afterward, and you'll have less symptoms. So that's kind of the number one use. Um, but I am extremely excited about that. Um, there are many, there's many, many studies on pro and pre and postbiotics being done, but I do not have, there's, there's like not one specific probiotic that's perfect for everyone. Everybody's aquarium or fish tank is very, very different. Um, and one other note regarding microbiome testing, it's kind of like testing for cholesterol. If you test it seven days in a row, you're going to have wildly different results, even with the same diet and stool habits. So take into account the number of stools. If you're not draining your stools, your microbiome report, whether it's a GI map or a Genova stool diagnostics, is, it could look higher if you have not drained it in a while. And that could be normal. Um, maybe you just need to drain more often. Um, but another thing to take note is just expect a lot of variation from day to day. So it's important not to consume antibiotics or probiotics or change your diet or travel if possible for at least two to four weeks before a test like that. Before like a, a gut microbiome test. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. Yeah. And now we have oral microbiome tests. Now we have skin microbiome tests. Um, in five years, a lot of this will be standard of care, hopefully, if things keep progressing in medicine and science. Yeah. So as far as ways to to improve gut health, um, you know, one thing I will say I noticed for myself is when I was fasting a little bit more, um, I wasn't going as often. And now that I've implemented actually some fruit into the diet, I, I find that I am going more regular. Is that is that something that could be beneficial? Yeah, um, that can absolutely be beneficial. With fiber, you think about your non-dietary and also your dietary fiber, both soluble and insoluble, and your prebiotic fiber. And you can't just consume one prebiotic fiber. Like you can't just consume inulin, which can cross-react with ragweed from time to time because they're both uh, chicory family derived. But um, there's multiple types of prebiotic fiber that can help, like aromaglycans. Um, and then you also have resistant starch. So um, mm. the, the world of like uh, fruits and vegetables to help with bowel habits um, is pretty individualized. The best way to do this is just to try different ones and see how they help. Okay. And is there a certain, I was just looking, I always see ads for them, a company called Seed. Are you familiar with them? What do you yep. think about their, I'm looking at their daily symbiotic, which is like a pre and a probiotic. Yep. Um, seed does have, I believe it's like a pomegranate capsule. They do have, um, like both prebiotic fiber and probiotics in the capsule. Right. The thing that I don't like most about seed is they make you sign up for a subscription to my knowledge. Right. You can't just like buy 120 capsules. Not right. everybody needs the same dose and some people don't need to titrate up at all. So, um, and I don't think people, most individuals need to stay on seed every day indefinitely. Um, during certain times, I do personally take one seed probiotic capsule per day. Oh, okay. So you I sort of titrate higher than that. Um, even though I probably could just because there is not a reason to titrate higher. Seed is one of the best ones. There's also spore based probiotics like Megaspore. And there's also specialty probiotics like Saccharomyces boulardii or even Acromantia. Um, but, uh, I, my threshold for like starting a probiotic like that, especially without like a significant diet or lifestyle or prebiotic fiber change is pretty low. Yeah. I do yeah. like seed though. That was a long answer to say I like seed. Yeah. I, 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 I see them all over the place and they seem like they make a good product, but you were right. It is a subscription-based um, model, which makes sense for them. <laughs> yeah. but, but, not, but Not many things should be subscription-based, but your healthcare with your doctor probably should be. The Cleveland Clinic charges up to $50 per message now. And mm. most traditional doctors do not get paid anything for answering messages, even if it's helpful and like improves the time efficiency of both the patient and the provider. Um, so that's another thing to think about. Mm. Okay. Wow. And, and this for the probat for something like seed, if you're taking that, you don't need to necessarily even take it every day, like you said. Or you don't necessarily need to titrate up to multiple capsules per day. Okay. Yep. I see. Um, wow. Lots of good stuff here. Um, coming up on the end, let's, let's maybe give the audience, this is a question I like to ask, um, my, most of my guests is, um, you know, what's one tip maybe to give in, uh, let's just say middle-aged individual, individual 
that uh, is looking to get their body back to what what it once was back when they were in their twenties and thirties. Um, what what type of what one tip would you give that individual? Whether the effort is in optimizing your diet or finding a movement pastime to last a lifetime, you know your exercise regimen. Find a way to make that effort feel good. Think about something that you do that you really enjoy that takes a lot of effort, whether it's a hobby or maybe it is exercise or whatnot, and find out how to apply that to optimizing that lifestyle pillar. Love that. So like almost find something that takes like something that you maybe did back in your past Mm -hmm. and bring that back out sort of thing. Like nice. Love that. Like rollerblading. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that could certainly be one rollerblading, rock climbing. Um, uh, there's all sorts of things. It doesn't looked... necessarily have to be a movement pastime either, okay. but um, it, it could even be playing video games. So a lot of people can sit down and play video games for 10 hours in a row. Oh and it's, yeah. it's interesting. And there's a lot of nuance to understand. And there's definitely a, a reward with being good at something over time. But uh, even for a video game, there's like the first time someone played and they're probably not very good. Right. Or how about learning an instrument? That That's an excellent one. Yeah. Well, this was great. Dr. Kyle, I appreciate you coming on. Um, where's the best place for people to learn about you and what you're doing? My main base, I guess, is on Instagram, Kyle Gillette, MD. Gillette is like the razor with the E shaved off. But you can find me all other all other platforms, Gillette Health. I also have a Gillette Health Clinic podcast. Um, and then uh, my website is GilletteHealth.com. Spell it anyway. Got it. And we'll put uh we'll put those in the show notes so people can find you. And uh, you're in Kansas, so not too yep. far from Chicago, like eight hours, I think. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on and uh thanks again for all the knowledge you dropped on us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine, and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.